So, in choosing Psalm 139, Psalm 139, in one sense it's a chunky psalm, but it's a psalm that we're all very familiar with. And we're all very familiar because it has some really incredible things in it. It says some incredible things that we love. And you know, and we read it and we pick the bits out of it that we like. And we pick the bits out that make us feel warm and fuzzy. But this morning I want to look at it as a whole psalm. So, it's broken down. It Basically, the psalm... It's in the fifth book of Psalms, which covers 107 to 150. And the spotlight is how God is among us. And it begins the third major section of the Davidic Psalms, and that's Psalm 138 to 145. And remember when we spoke about Psalms the last time, we know that there's different types of Psalms. There's Psalms of lament, Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, pilgrim Psalms. There's so many different types. Now, Psalm 139 is one of the most studied psalms that there is. And it causes controversy because people can't make up their minds. What type of psalm is it? Well, this psalm doesn't fit any one of them. And we will see that as we read it. You see, on one hand we can say, Psalm 139, it's a psalm of personal lament. But when we read it, we can say, no, you know what? It's not just that. See, it can be viewed as a psalm of lament. It can be viewed as a psalm of thanksgiving. It can be viewed as a psalm of praise. It can be viewed as a psalm of wisdom. Now, if we look at it as a psalm of wisdom, right? there's incredible similarities between Job because it uses the word Eloha for God. There's a message in, in verse 6 of Psalm 139, and it's a message of us being inferior to God. And this is similar to what you see in Job 40 and 42. And then the description of the creation of man, the incredible description of the creation of man in verse 13, is similar to that in Job 10 and 11. So what we need to do is we need to look at the breakdown. There's a structure in this psalm. And there's a literary structure and we can see what's, it's very clever as a poem because they've used these literary devices to make this mean more than we could just read it fast and understand. The psalm can be broken down into what are called four strophes. Okay? That's a difficult word to understand, strophe. So we can imagine it's very similar to say what we're going to hear around our GAA pitches today when the managers are there saying, right lads, we're going to get out there, we're going to give it 100% and we're going to win the strophe. Okay. Or, or our northern brethren today when they're preaching if there was one of them here they'd be praying and Lord we pray for your presence with our sister's trophy here this morning but anyway a strophe okay is what it is <laughs> a strophe is a grouping that forms one distinct unit. And that's what we're saying about this. It's four parts, but it's one. Okay? And it's broken down into verse 1 and 6. Then it's verse 7 to 12, verse 13 to 18, and 19 to 24. So let's have a look at verse 1 to 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
too lofty for me to attain. That's incredible, that first part. You see, the language of the first two strophes is dominated by this I, you. I, you. In the first strophe, you is the subject of nearly all of the verbs. You search, you know, you perceive. And the second strophe is dominated by I. The first three strophes are full of praise for God. And it's because he has such a depth of knowledge of David and the fullness of his presence in a world where he's our creator. You see, then what happens is there's a wonderful language of adoration and praise. And when we get to verse 19, it abruptly changes. See, some commentaries look at Psalm 139 and say that David is blending some of the wisdom themes with a complaint at the end. So if we look at verses 1 to 6, the psalm opens with how well David knows, or God knows David. Now, it's easy for us to say, I know something, I know somebody. You know, and even when we refer to God, look, I know God's presence. And we can be, you know, flippant about it, or maybe the wording we use doesn't really convey how much we know God. And if we don't read through this, that's the sense we get. Look, we know God, he knows us. Great, there you go, problem solved. But again, using clever um, words, and those words are like all and every way, and you know, and they're abstract words, and sometimes they're used to describe the totality of things. But see, in this psalm, there's another literary device used in poetry. And it takes our abstract view that he's always there, he's everywhere, he knows. And using words, they make us look at it even wider. They change our viewpoint to just knowing God, to changing the way that we know God, and the depth and the width and the breadth of how we know God, just by using clever words. Now, this device is called a merism, okay? And a merism is a technique that expresses totality. And the way that it does this is, right, so now we're familiar with all and every. A merism takes two parts that are polar opposites. So if we read through the verses, it says, when I sit, the opposite is rise, going out, lying down. You hem me in before and behind. So it widens our view. It's not just that God is there, but it gets us to think even more. Well, how is he there? He's before us, he's behind us, using these clever mirrorisms. And the thing is, we then see that God is searching. He searches us out. He searches David out. And to search normally means that we're looking for something. But when search is used in the wisdom psalms and in wisdom literature, right, it means in the sense to examine. So it's not just look for something, but it's to look intently. It's to examine us. So when David says that God is searching him, he is examining him. Now, the wording in the Psalms just goes beyond God examining us. And it shows us the true loving attentiveness that our Father has for us. Because I wasn't looking for you and there you were. It was I of searching deep, to have a deep knowledge, to have a greater understanding, to know you better than you can know yourself. That's our Father's heart for us. You know, you perceive, you discern, you are familiar. 
These are the words that are used to show us that it's beyond God, just I know you. Now, the thoughts of being scrutinized by God um, can make us feel quite uncomfortable. But David was showing us that this isn't a hostile examination or a critical examination. He knows you so he can correct you because you're always wrong and you need to listen to me. It's not that hostile correctiveness, that hostile examination. It's showing us that God has an incredible personal intimacy. And this is something that we can have with our loving Father. You see, verse 5 you hem me in. To hem means to bind. And again, we see a word that, well, I'm not comfortable with that because that's tying me up. I've been bound. But God hems us in. And again, behind and before. And our wider view is, he's behind us and he's in front of us. Not, he's with us. His presence is everywhere. And his presence goes beyond being there to being in front of us and behind us and all around us. And it becomes undeniable. See, we can have that intimacy with our Father. And see, it's a true intimacy that has us fully surrounded by a loving God. And see, he does bind us. But what's another meaning for bind? Is he makes us secure. Isn't that incredible? He's not wrapping you up to keep you quiet. He is wrapping you up to make you secure. And whether that's secure in your health, secure in your finances, secure in your personality, secure about who you are in him. That's what he's telling us. He's going to bind us. And he is before us. And he is behind us. When we read on, we come down to verse 7 to 12. And we see that David has thoughts about fleeing God. So on one hand, we have God who is all around us. He has an incredible knowledge of us. He understands us so well. I know David is saying, there's this position where I have to flee from you. And where can I flee from you? Let's read 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What an incredible picture that's been painted there for us. You see, the theme is still about God's pervasive presence. It's everywhere. You cannot escape for it. There's nowhere that we can go. And David uses these questions, and he uses the word to flee, because he's suggesting that it's all-encompassing, and that there's a never-present presence of God. I can't get away from it. I can't flee. And again, we see clever use of merisms here, because what we're talking about in, this, in these uh, passages is we're talking about the vertical and horizontal presence of God. He's up here, he's down here, he's over here, he's over here. It's widening our view. God is everywhere. No, how is he everywhere? He's beyond that. He is up here, down here. Now, you see that you know, the, the scripture talks about you know when I'm in the depths and when I'm in the heights. And this isn't seen as... Um, cementing the idea that we live in a three-tiered worldview, that there's a heaven, there's an earth, and there's a hell. 
It's David being figurative to show us how, in, how inescapable God's presence is. And it's important to note that, that it's not a justification. He's saying God is everywhere. His presence is unmistakable. Now, the next merism we see, the contrast, is light and dark. And it's typically we see that light was associated with divinity and darkness was associated with chaos and death. Now, can we escape God's presence by going into the dark? No. And you see, David recognizes his flawed thinking. And his flawed thinking is that if I go into the darkness, God can't be there. But we know how powerful our Father is, that when he steps into the darkness, it becomes light. Again, it's inescapable. But when we compare lightness to darkness, there is no darkness when we are in God's presence. There cannot be any darkness when we are in God's presence, because he is the light. He is the truth. He is the way. And that light will shine on any darkness. So there are no dark places for us to hide. You see, David wants us to see this truth. The very presence of our Father casts out all darkness. Amen? Then we move on to verse 13 and 18. We know that the presence of God is inescapable. But where does this presence begin in our lives? It begins from the very start of our creation. Let's have a look at the verse 13 to 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. How many of us are familiar with that scripture? Like, and there's an incredible comfort in that scripture. There's an incredible knowledge that comes from that scripture. And for us, like Caroline loves this scripture because it spoke to her when Michael was in her womb. You know, and Michael is one of our kids. Don't ask me to count. He's somewhere in the middle. If I come into the house, I know he's somewhere in the middle. We have six children, so it can get, uh, can get chaotic. You know, and Michael has dyspraxia, and, you know, it, it doesn't affect him in any way. Like, we see that he is fearfully and wonderfully made, and the way that God uses him is incredible. It doesn't affect him. It doesn't make his character. And there's a reassurance there that knowing that, you know, sometimes you can feel, why did one of our children end up with dyspraxia? Who knows? But we know that God was with him from the very start. Through his creation, through his forming in Caroline's womb, God was with him. So I don't have a question, why does he have dyspraxia? Because I know that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. What a comfort. And like, listen, you know, I'm saying that. Like, you should hear it from the woman who bore him. It's an even better story. I just can't give it any justice. Amen. <laughs> now, I have to say, like, in fairness to my wife, like, you know, I was blessed, um, Chris, when you shared with us, like, you were open and you were candid. And what you showed us is, is that, you know, when God moves to restore something, it's incredible. 
What's past is gone. And God just does a powerful restoration because his heart is to see you together as a blessed couple. You know, I was blessed by my wife this morning because she has this real soft, sweet voice. She leaned over to me and said, I would cut your arm off. (laughs) Well, look, I was listening to you. (laughs) She loves me, I know. Is that one? You can compare with Sharon. (laughs) Yes. See, we can't escape from our loving Father because he created our innermost being. See, David is confessing God's presence with him from the very, very beginning. How can we escape from our Father when he loves us so much And it's not a case of we have a distant father, we have a distant God. He is telling us, no, you know what? I was with you right from the start. Inescapable. Like, it's like we think we only have a relationship with God when we get to know Jesus and we only start our lives at salvation. And yet God is saying, no, your life started and I was there with you when it started. I want you to know my presence and my love. Because let me tell you, I know you intimately. And I know you in an incredible way. This is what he tells David. How can we escape from a father who knows us so well? How can we escape from a father who knows how we are going to try and escape? We can't. Now we can ignore him and we can not talk to him and we can keep him at a distance. But that's us. He's not at a distance. If he's with us from the start, he's not at a distance. David is confessing the presence of God right from the very beginning. And it's an incredible picture of our loving Father. How close is our Creator to us at the point of our creation? That's what he's saying. When you were created, I, the Creator, was there with you. And see, he's been with us since we were knitted together in our mother's womb. Now, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's a beautiful statement. But here's what's important to note about that statement, right? Is that we don't sit back and say, look at this. Ha, ha, look at this. I tell you, if I do this in the mirror, if I said that, I wouldn't look. Look at this. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's not about me bigging myself up by any means. You don't need to either, Caroline. Thanks. But it's beyond that because we're not to marvel at this great creation. This is what we're to marvel at. We're to marvel at the incredible mystery of creation. Not that we're the creation, I'm it, I'm here now. Huh? Look at me. It's we're to marvel at the mystery of our Father's creation and his incredible creativity. Because if I was setting out to make me, I wouldn't have started here. Amen? Now, we have to look on in awe at the mystery of creation. Now, here's the thing. Verse 16 uses something unusual. Okay, And the word for this, there's a Hebrew word for this, and it's called a hapax legamenon. 
Okay, we'll try that again. Hapax legomenon. There we go. We'll try again. Hapax legomenon. Okay, and this means something that is only ever used once. Okay, and this word is only ever used once, and it's used once in Psalm 139. And the word here, okay, is golem. And golem means something that is incomplete, unfinished. Okay, in the NIV it says my unformed body. And same thing as if we continue reading, it says my frame. So David is talking about his unformed body and his frame. Now why is he doing this? Why is he going into such great detail? Well, in verse 15, both terms when they're put together refer to us when we were embryos. And also, as the verse continues, it connects back in with the formation of us in our mother's womb. What an incredible picture of creation. And yet when we look at the abortion referendum, we look how we took that embryo and it was turned into something. Ah, Listen, it's only a cluster of cells. It's only something not important. We don't call it a baby because that upsets us. Yet God is telling us the importance of the embryo. Before it was formed, this is how important it is to our Father that he was with us. And yet our society has decided, no, this incredible creation is a cluster of cells and it's not really important and it doesn't have form and it doesn't have feelings. And yet this incredible picture that our Father has created of us blows that out of the water. What a repentance is going to be required by our nation when they truly find out the truth, when they find out what our Father is really saying. There's going to have to be a repentance because we've taken this and we've dismissed it as a nation. We've dismissed it. Not important, irrelevant. No, it's science. And yet God is saying, before you had nothing, I was there with you. Amen. In the final verses of this trophy, okay, it tells us, or David tells us, that all of his days are written in the book, in God's book. And putting this immediately after being in the womb, right? So we have the womb, now we have all of the days. We have this all-encompassing. He's with us from the start to the end. So God's presence isn't just a present thing, that he's here with us right now. He's already shown us that he was incredibly close to us at the very start, and he will be with us at the end, because he's taking this and showing us the totality of his love from us. I loved you at the start. I got bored halfway through. I'm sure that's it. That's not what he's saying from the start to the end. And again, it's, this is a very, in one sense, this is the word of God. And in another sense, this is a very clever poem because it keeps drawing us in. He's with us from the start. He's with us from the end in all of our days. Not some of the days. All of our days. So by being in the womb and to our very end. This shows us that there is no part of our lives that can escape the loving gaze of our Father. Your life is so important to him, he sees the start, he sees the end. That's an incredible picture of a loving Father, isn't it? See, here's the thing. Like David, we need to be in awe 
We cannot know the vastness of God's thoughts for us. Yet he tells us he never stops thinking about us. Right? When we go asleep, he doesn't stop thinking about us. When we wake up, he is still thinking about us. What an incredible picture of a loving father. is that he loves us so much. He never stops thinking about you. He wants to connect with you. He knows you so well and he knows how to connect with you. Suddenly the idea of God being a distant being or a deity is blown away by this. That God is not there. That God is here. That God is here. What an incredible reality. Now, we then see this shift in the and sometimes people stop reading after verse 18 because the tone of it changes, the wording of it changes, and it's like, that's not warm and fuzzy. Now he's given out. Now he's complaining. And now he's rallying against people and they're bloodthirsty. And it's like, well, how does that fit in? Well, what's that got to do? But it has a place because we know that scripture is inspired by God. And it's not just put there, oh, this, we forgot to put this in in the when we're putting the Psalms together, that stick that on the end of Psalm 139. It'll fit well. It fits for a purpose. Let's read the final strophe. So in verse 19, If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, it is a stark change to the first three Sophies. 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 Hi, Sophie. And what David is talking about, he's talking about the threat of his enemies. Okay? See, what we now see is David is petitioning God. And he wants God to address his current concerns and his current circumstances. See, David calls his enemies wicked and he calls them bloodthirsty. And this is a name calling. This isn't, well, they're wicked and bloodthirsty. This is very, very specific. See, it's David expressing to God the grave threat that he sees right now. But here's the thing. Why is he saying this to God? After all the nice, warm, fuzzy things in the first few verses, why is he saying this to God? Because David recognizes that he cannot fight his enemies that he must give them to God, that he must turn them over to God, and that only God can rectify the situation. Only God can move in the situation. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? But see, hate here, you know, hate can be quite emotional. Hate can be quite aggressive. But the use of the word hate here, it's not referring to a negative emotion or a negative feeling. It's used to show that those who are against God lack a relationship with him. That's really what David is saying here, is that they lack a relationship with you. 
And see, the thing is then, the enemies of God are the enemies of those who are on the side of God. That's what David is saying. And see, David ends with one of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament. Search me. Know me. Know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. We know this very well because we use it and sometimes we pray it. You see, David's anxiety is due to the threats that are posed to him by his enemy. But he wants God to search him. He wants God to test him. And he wants God to root out anything that is offensive in his heart. Why? See, David knows that he needs God. And he wants nothing to come between him and the presence of his father. That's why he's saying, search me, know me. Now, if we take the whole psalm and look at it, okay? This psalm is beautiful because it's intimately personal. And it shows you that God is intimately personal with you. It tells you that God is constantly present with you, even when we don't want him. And it tells us of our Father's intimate knowledge of us. Now here's the thing. The knowledge and presence of God, it's a great comfort, yes? But it's also a great fear. It's two things. See, in verse 5 and 7, we're hemmed in and we're looking to flee. And then in verse 10, God's hand is holding us fast. And again, those images can be a comfort or they can be a fear. But in verse 18, we see that the Father's nearness is what causes David to have hope. Especially in the face of his enemies. In verse 13 and 15, we can see the intimate care of our Father's hand as he put us together in our mother's womb. And in verse 10, we can see the hand of God guiding us. Yet sometimes, like in verse 5, we can assume that that hand of God on us is a heavy thing, that he's leading on us. But we should understand this. David is showing us God's hand. And it's his hand on us, which is an expression of his love for us. And it's through corrective action that he shows us his everlasting presence. The comfort of knowing that God is with us and that he knows us intimately goes hand in hand with the fear that God is with us and God knows us intimately. You see, it was the same God who took David from the fields and made him a king. It's the same God who chastised David for chasing after Bathsheba. Are we content having God near us, but maybe not too near? See, the thing is, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. God knows us so well. He's seen us from the very beginning. He sees us on our good days. He sees us on our bad days. He sees us in the darkness. And yet he chooses to cast his incredible light into that darkness so that we can see a way out. We can trust him. His care for us can't be denied. He never stops thinking about you. He never stops thinking about me. 
That is something that sometimes I struggle to accept. Yet knowing that he's here beside me and he doesn't stop thinking about me. How can I deny him? How can I deny his presence? How can I choose darkness over light? His care for us can't be denied. He thinks about you all the time, regardless of where you are, when you're asleep, when you're awake. Now, this is how well your father knows you. He knows you so well. That he prepared the perfect salvation. You see, he pours out his love for us in Psalm 139. He delights in telling us how much he desires us. He desires to be close to us. He desires to make our relationship with him real. Not abstract, not distant, not I know God and he knows me. He wants to make it so much more that he prepared the perfect salvation. He gave his son as a sacrifice because his knowledge of you knew that there was nothing you could do to get that salvation, to make that salvation happen without accepting his son. What an incredible picture of a loving father I know you so well that this is what you need to do. This is what will set you free. So he let Jesus take our place. And see, here's the beauty. David acknowledges that he needs God and he would let nothing get in the way. And like with Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we have to repent. And we ask Jesus, search me, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. And you know what? See if there's anything offensive in me. Because we cannot stand before Jesus and be in sin because of the incredible love that he has for us. He will take that from us. Our path to getting closeness with God, because he's already there. But how do we talk to him? We accept Jesus. How do we accept everlasting life? We accept Jesus. What an incredible understanding of our Father. What an incredible understanding of why he did it. Because he was with you right from the start. And he will be with you right at the end. But our choice is whether we be with him. Whether we be an enemy or whether we be a friend, whether we be distant, or whether we be close. And we accept that salvation. That's how we get that closeness. And it's almost like this whole psalm is, you know what, this is the present you get when you accept the salvation of Jesus. This closeness is not distant anymore. It's always there, you just can't see it. We don't have the wisdom to see it. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the revelation of the Holy Spirit to see it. Even though the words are there saying it. Until we accept Jesus as our Savior. Amen. That's Psalm 139. What an incredible Psalm. Father, thank you for your word. 
Lord, thank you for your learning experience. Because, Lord, this isn't something that I just prepared or just prepared from my knowledge. But, Father, that you gave me this word. And, Father, you revealed your true presence to us, Lord. Lord, we long for your presence, and yet your scripture says it's right there. And it had always been there. And it will always be there. Father, this week, give us a new and fresh understanding of your presence. Lord, I accept that at times it's going to be uncomfortable. But it's going to be uncomfortable because you're smothering me in love. You're smothering me in your presence. Father, we thank you for your revelation. In Jesus' name.